Hello and welcome to the very first episode of the podcast created and led by fellows at Hofstra University's Center for Civic Engagement. For those of you who don't know, CCE is a university institute designed to educate students in democratic values by actively engaging them as knowledgeable citizens. This podcast was designed out of a desire to continue pursuing these goals while social distancing in the COVID-19 pandemic. Every episode, a pair of fellows and potential guests will discuss a topic of importance to them. So today we will be talking about um, human trafficking on a local level, as well as its connection to toxic toxic masculinity and the pressures that are put on young boys and men today um, in society. Before we get started with today's conversation, I wanted to point out that there will be certain topics discussed like abuse, human trafficking, rape, and gender violence. So I want to issue a trigger warning, make sure that if anyone is sensitive to these topics to avoid listening to certain parts of this podcast or this podcast altogether. We understand that this conversation can be troubling for some people and we do not want to impose harm on anyone who may be listening. So my name is Sarah. I will be one of the fellows leading this interview today. Um, I am a freshman at Hofstra University, a CCE fellow, as well as a double major in global studies and public policy. Yeah, and I'm Bella, uh, the other fellow that will hopefully be co-facilitating this conversation, and I'm a sophomore entrepreneurship major. I personally am coming from, you know, a space of learning. I don't have as much expertise as Sarah or the two of our guests today, so hopefully I might be able to ask questions from the, the perspective, you know, of an excited learner. So hopefully that's what I'll get to do today. We have two guests um, with us today. Um, we have Trisha Grant, who is a human trafficking survivor from Maine. Um, she's the director of Not Here, which is an organization in Maine um, that works to help address the threats of human trafficking and exploitation, as well as assisting survivors. We also have today Heidi Randall, who is the program director for Maine Boys to Men, which is an organization that is working to educate the general public on toxic masculinity, toxic femininity, um, as well as uh, gender on a spectrum. My name is Heidi Randall, and I work currently for the organization Maine Boys to Men. Um, so our mission is basically engaging men as allies to end violence against women and girls. Um, actually really to end all forms of male violence against everybody, um, self-harm and harm to others. But we, our, our mission needs to kind of get like upgraded a little bit. Um, prior to that, I've really worked in the field of um, violence against women since college. So over 30 years I've been doing this work um, in different capacities in Maine, Vermont, and in New Zealand. Um, so I started out working for a domestic violence project and a rape crisis project and um, some youth engagement work and then have kind of now ended up at, um, at Maine Boys to Men. So that's what I do there. And Trisha, what about you? I am a survivor of trafficking. I was trafficked here in Maine when I was 15. Um, I didn't realize that that's what had happened to me for 16 years. Um, so I kept it a secret and I never told anybody. Um, so since I've come forward about being trafficked and gained an understanding of what happened to me, um, I, it's just kind of led me on a journey of figuring out what's going on here in Maine, who's here, who's doing what, um, you know, where I'm being led to get involved um, in fighting trafficking. Um, and a big part of that has been doing prevention education through sharing my story publicly and also uh, running curriculum for Not a Number and My Life, My Choice. Um, both of those are prevention education uh, for youth. Um, so that's a big part of what I've been doing. Um, but more recently, I am the program coordinator for Sophia's House um, in Lewiston. That is a program that supports women who have experienced trafficking and exploitation um, and just offers them an opportunity to have that kind of peace and um, support system for a two-year period around um, to just support them on their next journey of healing and um, kind of moving through recovery and moving through their trauma. Um, 
so that's my full-time job. I'm still doing my other work um, as an independent consultant. So yeah, that in a nutshell is what I'm doing. I'm on committees all over New England, um, just uh, doing anti-trafficking work and legislative work and all kinds of stuff. For me, I don't know if this is the best place to start, but I would love maybe to start this conversation just by establishing a strong foundation with definitions of not only human trafficking and what that looks like, but also toxic masculinity, just so maybe everybody listening as well as myself has an understanding to grow off of, of what those two things look like. Yeah, so maybe I'll, I'll just jump in um, and, and start because I feel as though violence against women by men primarily comes out of this social construct of, um, of gender in our culture. Um, and so maybe, you know, that can help us lay the foundation a little bit. Um, so I, I have come to use a term called gender dysfunction. Um, and I've, I've trying to kind of walk away from the terms toxic masculinity or toxic femininity, just because I don't know. I just, I just feel I'm still playing around with this and our, the terms are changing rapidly in our culture. Um, but I feel like the way that people, um, are taught to perform, um, their gender can, can be dysfunctional. And so that's what I've been, that's the term that, that I've been sort of trying on lately is this idea of, of gender dysfunction. So masculinity and femininity, femininity in, and gender basically are a social construct. So um, basically as, you know, babies are born and raised, um, they're often assigned a gender identity and then they're, they begin to form their, their gender, and then they begin to feel a pressure to perform their gender. Um, and sometimes some traditional idea, they may be introduced to very traditional, unhealthy, dysfunctional um, ideas about their gender, specifically masculinity. And really they, they have this feeling or a need to perform sort of masculinity in a way that's dysfunctional and harmful I think it's really important to note often harmful to themselves and everyone around them. I don't, I think that gender dysfunction is, um, it can't just be, it can't be separate. Um, we can't just say, you know, um, masculine gender dysfunction as it relates to masculinity is only harmful to everyone. I, I believe it's harmful to the boys and the men um, who feel the pressure to perform and, and do that as well. So, and then I would just say that this pressure to perform gender dysfunction or, you know, or masculinity that's dysfunctional leads to all types of sexual, physical violence against, against others. Um, and the primary, I mean, if we want to just get really simple and right to the point, um, the gender construct in our culture that can be the, what we call the dominant story of masculinity in our culture is that men um, are to play a traditional role of domination um, over women. Um, and women are expected to play a traditional role of submission. And that sort of unspoken agreement that gets played out in movies and TV and media as children are being raised um, just creates uh, a terrible environment um, for, for gender dysfunction to take place and for violence to occur um, throughout our culture and in many ways. Um, in intimate partner relationships and se through sex trafficking, um, sexual assault. Um, and basically, the, you know, the very simplistic core of this is that men have the highest value in our culture and anyone, anyone else is seen as other and having less value and that men have the right to kind of own, to buy, to punish, to, um, to harm um, sort of anyone who is not sort of a man. Um, and that just creates a terrible foundation um, and messaging around um, people's inherent value, worth, and safety in our culture. I would love to also understand, you know, what is human trafficking? What does it look like? Does it come in different forms? Maybe kind of get an understanding of that side as well. 
Yeah, definitely. I unfortunately didn't come prepared with like a technical definition of what exploitation and trafficking is, but I can definitely explain it just from a survivor's perspective and as somebody who works with other survivors and is just part of the anti-trafficking movement. Trafficking and exploitation happen in very different ways. You know, it can really happen to anybody, anywhere, anytime. It almost never, I don't want to say it never does, but it almost never looks like it does in the movies, like in the movie Taken, like it just doesn't, it doesn't happen that way most of the time. Can it? Yes. But that's not what the majority of the time that it looks like. The things that you see posted, you know, like the, the advertisements and stuff against anti-trafficking where people are chained up or they're tied up or they're shoved in a van and then kidnapped, like those situations actually rarely happen. What trafficking and exploitation look like more often is people being exploited for their vulnerabilities. It's that that youth, you know, who has run away from home because they're, you know, they're experiencing a multitude of different things at home that they just can't handle anymore. So running away seems like the best option. So a trafficker will, will do, definitely be able to identify that vulnerable youth. And they don't kidnap them and shove them in the back of a van, typically. Typically, what they'll do is they'll just start a simple conversation with them. They'll start a conversation of, oh my goodness, you're so beautiful. I can't believe how beautiful you are. Has anybody ever told you that? And you know, that youth maybe has never heard that before. So for them, that's a huge thing that, you know, a huge way to exploit them is just by being seemingly kind on the outside and giving them the things that they don't have at home maybe giving them, you know, that new cell phone, maybe telling them how beautiful they are, maybe, um, you know, bringing them out to eat to a nice place or buying them those nice clothes or getting their hair done or getting their nails done. All of those things that, you know, will on the outside make them feel better about who they are. Um, and those traffickers will use that to get them kind of hooked in, you know, all of those things and they'll feed them that lie. You know, oftentimes it comes down to like a boyfriend kind of girlfriend exploitation experience where, you know, that, that older man will feed them all those things that they want to hear. Like, oh, we can, we can start our own home together. We can create a family. You know, I have a place you can sleep. It's totally fine. You know, and then they start that sexual relationship with them, you know, typically just that one-on-one -on -one sexual relationship. And then what happens, you know, a little bit down the road is that they say, well, now you owe me, you know, I've done all of these things for you and I can't afford to keep doing them for you. But if you could just do this one thing for me, it's really not a big deal. You do it anyways for free. So you might as well get paid for it, you know, is the lie that can be told to, to typically women. It does happen to boys and men also, but it's typically a boy or a man who is doing this. Those are the typical ways of trafficking and exploitation to happen. And drugs oftentimes come into play either as a way that they exploit, you know, and this can be a youth or an adult woman. Um, it, it starts out typically between the ages of 12 and 14 is when most, most people are trafficked. Um, but sometimes it can start at, at older ages also. But in, in all of the situations, um, it's exploitation and they're being exploited for their vulnerabilities. And oftentimes that does break down to um, somebody struggling with substance use, you know, substance use disorder. You know, that trafficker or that exploiter might come to them and say, hey, well, you want this drug or you want this X, Y, or Z. I can give that to you. All you have to do is do this. And right then they're being exploited. If they're under the age of 18, it's automatically considered trafficking. If they're over the age of 18, that's where the lines begin to be a little bit blurry. Sometimes, um, sometimes that person exploiting them can be charged with trafficking and sometimes it's exploitation. You know, and oftentimes if somebody is not struggling with a substance use disorder at the beginning, to mask the pain that they're experiencing from that sexual trauma of being trafficked or exploited, they will start using a substance because it will mask that pain and it will help them to get through what they're experiencing. Um, so that's in, in a large nutshell is, is a, a, you know, a breakdown of what sexual exploitation and trafficking can look like. I was recently at a department of uh, justice conference. Uh, I guess it would have been last almost a year ago now um, because we received some funding from uh, the Department of Justice around engaging men um, as allies in ending, in ending violence against women. And um, I went to one particular uh, workshop and they were talking about kind of the myths of 
of trafficking and many of, of which have been mentioned here today. Um, but another one which, you know, never occurred to me was that a large amount of sex trafficking actually happens within families. So the first person to traffic um, a person who's being trafficked is actually a family member. Um, and I think that's a, a really common misunderstanding and, and myth about, about how sex trafficking can, somebody can enter into um, being trafficked is actually through um, either an immediate family member or an extended, extended family member as well. Yeah, a lot, a lot of the women I work with, unfortunately, have experienced familial trafficking, which is one of the ways to be trafficked for sure. Um, it most definitely triggered something in me when I was doing prevention education at a local high school, and we were talking about, uh, we were at the session where we were talking about pimps and what, what does a pimp or a trafficker actually look like. And it's a really great experiment because um, what they don't know is that all 20 of the pictures that they're shown, they have to choose this picture and then they go to one room, one side of the room or the other if they think this person is a trafficker and all 20 of them are actually traffickers. At the end of each of our sessions, we give them index cards where they can, um, you know, where they can write down uh, an anonymous question that they have. And on one of the cards I received was, I think I'm doing this to my girlfriend. Um, and that that young man actually came up to me after and instead of passing it in anonymously, he asked me, um, he said, I, I think I'm doing this to my girlfriend. When we explained what trafficking somebody looks like, we were able to counsel him and talk to him and get family history from him and understand that in his family, that toxic masculinity was very much at play of, you know, men, men are the dominant. They, they tell you when and where and how to do whatever it is that they want you to do. Um, and unfortunately in his family, that was part of his family dynamic. So that's what he understood as a, as a relationship with a girl meant. And it was heartbreaking and eye-opening and, um, you know, we used it as a great opportunity to be able to get in there and really support this young man who wanted to do something different. Um, he wanted to make a different choice, but he didn't even know that that was an option. So fortunately, we, we did, he was not exploiting or trafficking his girlfriend, but it was definitely leading in that direction. Um, so we were able to get in there and just kind of mentor him in a gentle way, you know, of making, making some hard choices, you know, that involve maybe creating some different kind of boundaries within his own family. It was interesting just to hear about that. That whole family dynamic of trafficking is very, very powerful. And, and it's almost from all the survivors that I work with that have experienced familial trafficking, they definitely have very deep levels of trauma that they still work through today, even though oftentimes they've been far removed from that situation for years. Um, it's something that stays with them. I can imagine that if you're immersed in a community or even in a home uh, where things are happening so quickly, you might not recognize trafficking is occurring, but also, you know, dangerous interpretations of gender as well. I'm just wondering if there might be indicators somebody could look for or even a safe way for them to talk to these topics with their family or with people they're surrounded by in school or in any group setting. I think that I'm, I'm interpreting that question in two different ways. I think that definitely like prevention education is really important um, at all levels of just even if it's the only thing that you can do is post something somewhere that is a very quick breakdown of what is exploitation, what is trafficking, and what can you do about it is really helpful because even if you're just planting that seed. And I think from the perspective of somebody who might be experiencing that, also keeping that language very simple and also really sharing that if you've experienced these things, they're not your fault. You know, these things are being done to you and they are not your fault. And there are people who can help you and support you through it. Because um, I think that just that feeling of being isolated and not knowing who to turn to or, you know, breaking it down simply enough so that you're even able to recognize that it wasn't your fault that these things are being done to you. Even if, you know, you might say, well, I put myself there, or I wore these clothes, or I did X, Y, and Z, so it's my fault, so now I have to deal with the consequences of this. Um, kind of breaking down those myths in a simple kind of way is really helpful and impactful. I think um, some, of the, some of the other warning signs for people on the out, who may be like on the outside of the situation, noticing um, 
like new expensive belongings, like um, was mentioned earlier, like a, a new cell phone or a smartphone or clothing or having your hair done. So in terms of like a parent or a friend or a family member or a teacher, you know, sort of noticing sort of like a dramatic shift um, in, as we talked about, belongings, appearance, um, is, is one way. Another way that some schools are beginning to identify it is um, students who are missing school for chunks of time. Sometimes we've been noticing, at, we, we belong to an organization called the Violence Prevention Network in Southern Maine, and we, have, we often sort of share um, what we're seeing in schools, and the teachers will, and administrations will share what they're seeing in schools, and they are seeing sex trafficking happening to students in, in main schools. Um, and one thing they'll notice are these, like, absences from school that are unexplained and, you know, not unexcused absences where students will be maybe taken to a different part of the state for, for, uh, for a while and then brought back again, things like that. Adding on to that, I also would love your help with a deeper understanding of things that for some reason have been ingrained in our culture that may fuel dangerous interpretations of gender. Things like saying boys will be boys or man should be taking care of you. These are things that he is supposed to be doing or things that we think might be normal to say. Uh, but that actually might fuel something a, b- a bit more, yeah, negative. Yeah, I, I don't mind speaking to, to that briefly. I mean, I, I don't, I think it's really important that when we're talking about this topic, that we, that we talk about men and that we talk about the men who are the captors and that we talk about the men who are doing the trafficking and that we talk about the men who are purchasing, purchasing sex. And I think one of the messages or common beliefs in our culture, what we call like a dominant story, is that this idea of if I pay for sex, I'm buying something and it's not an act of violence. It's almost like a dismissal of kind of a guilt or, or I'm, not, I'm not harming, I'm not, I'm not being violent towards women just because I'm purchasing sex. And I think that, that that is a very dangerous belief, but I do think it is a strong belief in our culture. And I would just like you know to really firmly say that there is no nonviolent way to purchase another human being right? And whether that's money or uh, a phone or a meal or whatever, that it, it is all wrong and it is all not okay. And I think that there's another thing that happens in male culture, dysfunctional male culture, where the people who are purchasing the sex sometimes feel as though they're somehow the nice guy and because they're not the captor, right? They're not the ones selling the person. They're just purchasing sex and that there's some sort of difference between them. And I think that's a very damaging idea and a damaging belief. Um, it somehow sep- separates men um, and, and makes them feel somehow that their act of, of purchasing you know, sex is, is okay and, and not wrong. Um, and I also think there's this interesting thing that happens when a man purchases sex because it's secret and it's hidden and it's not visible to many people. It somehow becomes an environment where, and, and they're purchasing it, where consent is out the window, right? So it creates a situation of obvious um, harm, potential violence. But this idea that you can buy lack of consent from another person is is incredibly harmful and and a very dominant story in our culture. So those are just some of the thoughts. I mean, I think one of the biggest, most important training, we do prevention works in, in school and the strongest activity that we do is called the gender boxes, where we really have students look at the ways that we're expected to act and behave based on our gender and how we're expected and acted to treat others based on our gender. And one of the messages that um, women and young women and girls get from the you know, very, very young is that their value is attached to their appearance and their value is attached to how well they sexually satisfy men. And we see that You can't go a day in this culture without seeing that in the media, in movies, in a magazine, it's social media, it's everywhere. And so how can that exist in our culture 
And yet, how can we also be fighting against this idea that uh, it's not okay to view women as products or a commodity or something to buy? And yet at the same time, we're all, we're just constantly sending that message in our culture that women are products and they can be bought and their value is attached to what they look like and how they perform sexually. It's really kind of a, a feeding system in a way for this problem in my mind. Um, Trisha, I have a question for you specifically. Um, I have obviously had conversations about human trafficking um, as well as gender dysfunction um, with my friends, my family, and there is a really common misconception I've noticed with separating out trafficking, sex trafficking, and um, strip clubs. And oftentimes people believe that there is a difference between the two. I wanted to know if you could speak to that a little bit um, and kind of debunk um, that misconception um, that because a girl is at a strip club performing, that means that she wants to be there as opposed to being trafficked. Yeah, definitely. Well, I actually just recently learned something that actually if you were being trafficked at a at a strip club, you're, it's actually considered labor trafficking which I thought was really interesting because it also separates it and it, it brings it to another level because I think that some people view labor trafficking and sex trafficking as one's worse than the other and they're both not. They're both equally as uh, horrific and awful. That being said, uh, when I was being trafficked, you know, at 15 years old, I was told to show up and I was never told where I was going or how long I would be expected to be gone for or what would be expected of me. I was just told to show up. And one of the places that I was brought to was strip clubs. And although being at strip clubs was, I, I don't even want to say not as traumatizing because it was. Um, if, I, if you have to take your clothes off for somebody that you don't want to and you're being touched by people you don't want to be touched by, it's traumatizing. I think that that's a distinction that people don't understand is that, you know, there are people there who are trying to do things to me that I didn't want done to me and people touching me in places I didn't want to be touched and people, you know, expecting me to show all of my body to them when I didn't want to is very traumatizing. And oftentimes it's the beginning of being sexually exploited and being sex trafficked is that being brought to strip clubs piece is that, you know, that wasn't all that was being done to me. There, there was more than that being done that people didn't even know. Um, and nobody was asking me as a 15 year old, and this is something that I talk about often and that whole privilege thing is that, you know, nobody was asking me when I was being trafficked how old I was or if I wanted to be there or asking to see my ID. So this whole conversation that is a whole nother subject about legalizing prostitution um, for me is just how, how are you going to regulate that and how are you going to know who wants to be there and who doesn't? I have never met one survivor of trafficking or exploitation who wanted to be out in the streets. Like, I've never met one person who said, I want to have sex 25 times a day. You know, I've never, ever met any person who has said that. And it's the same thing with strip clubs. Like I've never met one person who, you know, even will say that they willingly have gone to a strip club that will say, I wanted to be taking my clothes off for hundreds of men. I just never heard anybody say that. Genuinely, I've met with hundreds and hundreds of survivors of trafficking and exploitation and not one of them ever said, I wanted to be doing this. Yeah, I think that I think that goes back to the dominant story of sex work in our culture, which is that, you know, the dominant story would have us believe that that women, you know, want to participate in this or that they're consensually participating in this and that is just because it's the dominant story doesn't mean it's 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 the truth. So I think I think some of the, a lot of the messaging again in movies and social media is like you know they're there they're doing it so they must want they, they must want to participate in this and and that actually doesn't pan out to be true. The other piece that I think Trish brought up that is really really important goes back to this concept of consent and we're really talking about consent these days in in prevention education less about consent and more about agreements because consent is still something that be that you need to kind of get from someone. And that can imply manipulation, all kinds of problematic things about, about getting it from someone. And whereas an agreement is something that two people agree to about what's going to happen between two people. And again, 
what we see in um, sort of dominant situations, human trafficking, sexual assault, is this idea that this person doesn't, doesn't have the right at any moment to make an agreement about touch, about sex, about their body, about who's in the room, about how they're being touched. Like, it's just, it doesn't exist in, in this realm. And to me, it just blows my mind that we can live in a culture where, you know, and I don't think we teach young people about consent. So we're going back to the cultural messages. We don't teach young girls that they get to have bodily autonomy at all times. Like they get to say what happens to their body. And so I think for some some people growing up, I know I can, I can say myself, I didn't know that I could say no to anyone at any time. My, the messaging I received is that you're supposed to smile, you're supposed to be pleasant, you're supposed to be agreeable, you're not supposed to take up a lot of space, make a lot of noise, not have an opinion, you know, you don't want to get anybody mad, you know, you got to appease the situation, and that my safety was my responsibility, and sometimes what it meant to be safe was to be appeasing. Right. And I think that that happens a lot for for women all the time in in situations like this, that their safety is connected to their ability to to appease the situation. I think that's a really great point. And I think that that's part of like the, the technical definition of trafficking. That's why it's important to break down the differences between trafficking and exploitation, because with trafficking, you have to prove force, fraud, or coercion if you're over the age of 18. If you're under the age of 18 and these things are happening, that even, even though the situations might be exactly the same for somebody under the age of 18 as they are with somebody in their 30s, it's harder to prove force, fraud, or coercion if you're over the age of 18. If you're under the age of 18, if any of those things are happening to you, you're being trafficked. Um, so it's easier to identify in people under the age of 18. That's why it's really important to talk about both when you're talking about trafficking. It's important to talk about exploitation and, and trafficking. You know, talking about consent is, is just a part of that conversation of you might have gotten consent, but how did you get that consent? even what were the circumstances that possibly made you agree to something? Like, how did that all break down to you? That's why it's so important to be able to have more information um, and to be able to offer more information. Because I know when I was, you know, when I was 12 in the first sexual experience that I had, I was like, I didn't know I could say no. I wanted to. I didn't want to be doing what I was doing. But I just went along because like you said, like I I was never taught. I was just taught that's what boyfriends and girlfriends do. You have sex. You have to do that to make your boyfriend happy. And I was never taught anything different. So that just led to more vulnerability in my life, you know, being becoming a teen parent and then being trafficked at 15 and, you know, so many different situations that made me very vulnerable. I think there's um, a piece about the vulnerability. Um, I was just in preparing for, for this interview. I was reading a couple of different articles and one of the um one of the articles is bringing attention to um the way that um somebody who's being sex trafficked um is uh, put in multiple different types of situations so it could be a strip club it could be one-on-one sex with somebody you know it could be all these different things and and at first the person may think oh just it's just kind of muddled and disorganized and sort of confusing but in fact, um, it's actually intentional in that it creates a situation where this person who is vulnerable never knows what to expect and can never figure out in any given situation where the safety is. Like, who is the safe person here? Where is the exit here? Like, is there, is there something about this situation where I can seek safety? And if the environment is constantly changing, it, can, it keeps you vulnerable and you're never able to kind of really figure out and navigate like who's the safe person, where's the safe place, where do I get resources, how do I get help? Yeah, and that safe person can be really distorted. I remember the very first interview that I gave with Homeland Security when I came forward about my case. In that split moment, like they were asking me that question of, well, have I seen any of these people out in the community? 
you know, since I, since I had been trafficked. And I said, oh yeah, I saw one of the nice guys. I saw one of the nice guys at one of the bars. And in that moment, like they were like, well, who's the nice guy? And I said, well, the bouncer. And in my mind, he was the safe guy. He was the nice guy because he wasn't raping me, you know? So that can become really distorted for somebody who's walking through that is what does safety mean? Because in my mind, because he wasn't raping me, he was the safe guy. But in reality, he wasn't because he wasn't doing anything to stop it from happening. So he wasn't the safe guy. But in my mind, even at that moment, six, 17 and a half years later at that time, in my mind, he was still the safe guy, which to me is just insane thinking about it now. That's why it is so important to talk about like those safety networks and who are those safe, safe people and why are they safe people? Yeah, especially with youth who, because somebody is not raping you means they're safe. No, it's somebody who's stopping it from happening. Somebody who's nurturing who you are as a person, not because of what you look like or what you can offer them, but because of who you are. Yeah, I think that also brings up just a really good point about upstander intervention and the role that men can play um, and how to engage men as allies in these situations just because you're not buying the sex or um, performing the sex or selling the sex. Um, I do think there is this way that men think that they are the good guy because they're not doing those things, even though they're totally aware that it's happening. And they're not intervening in any way. There's a whole layer on top of all of that, which is the whole bro code stuff, right? Like I can be a good guy. This can be happening right in front of me. As long as I'm not doing it, I'm still a good guy. You know, our organization would say that we are really asking so much more from everyone in our communities that, you know, people really need to take it a step further and find ways to, we, we call it the four Ds and the one C, but to safely intervene and get resources to people who need it. Um, and that it's not enough not to just be the one who's not doing it, but we really need to kind of take that, that step further. And so really we're appealing to the humanity within everyone. And I do believe that people want to do the right thing and they want to step in and they want to make change. And what we call the man box or this pressure to perform masculinity and be loyal to the men around you and placing that loyalty over the care and well-being of a woman or a child or a younger boy who's being taken advantage of is, is a real problem for a lot of men. And they identify it. They don't know what to do about it. They're afraid that the violence will get turned against them if they intervene. It's one of the biggest, I think, barriers for men coming forward, intervening, being an upstander is this idea that the violence will be turned against them and that part of the messaging that they've gotten since they were a little boy was that you don't tell what another man is doing that's harmful to somebody else. You don't do that. You know, to be a man means that you don't rat another guy out. And it is super destructive, super dangerous, and a huge, huge problem in making progress in these, in these issues. Is there a way to start breaking down these unspoken rules that have been integrated into our society where, you know, men are supposed to act a certain way, they're supposed to treat other men and treat women a certain way? And is there a way to have that conversation with the male identifying people in our life without leading to defensiveness? So all of our school-based programming is, is geared exactly to that. It may seem a little oversimplified, but giving men permission to step out of the man box and be their whole self, if that doesn't, that may not look like a traditional male stereotype, giving them permission to have empathy for others, to care about others, to be compassionate about others, to stand up and do the right thing. There are a lot of places in our culture, in our in media that allow or give men permission to be something other than this very narrow definition of masculinity. Um, so we actually teach all of this. We teach consent. We, we teach what it means to be in a man box, what it means to be out of a man box. We teach about upstander intervention. We teach, like I said, consent. All, all of these these different things. And for many of the boys and even adult men that we're working with, it's one of the first times that they have received 
this information. I mean, it truly is the counter story to the messaging they're getting like on a daily basis from other places. But the really cool thing that I think is super positive is that once you've been offered it and once you've been given permission, it so aligns with how they truly feel inside themselves. It's so powerful to them. They can never go back to not having the awareness of the possibility of it being a different for them. They want permission to be released from this structure and system. And once they're given permission, it creates the space for them to give others around them the same permission. It really shifts people's thinking. It's like watching the beliefs just crack, break, and fall. It's very powerful. We also have, for example, this year we did an Engaging Men as Allies workshop. We partnered with the Maine Women's Lobby and we brought men together focused specifically on these topics and specifically about how men can be allies to women, what specifically they can do. We had a panel of female identified um, participants who really shared um, very openly open-heartedly with the men in the room and we did question answers of what is the female experience like and what can men do to show up for women in all areas and specifically around safety and and being an ally ally to women we also have a, a group called men connect which used to meet in person is now meeting virtually where men come together and learn how to be vulnerable with each other how to connect around dismantling these themes and ideas and cultural stereotypes, um, social norms that they've been fed that that they don't they don't want them either. Like they don't want them either. It reminds me a lot of the story Trish shared earlier in the podcast about the young boy when she's shown the light of the this experience. To him of what a woman's perspective is on sex trafficking he identified his potential of being involved in that he had the awareness he had compassion and empathy and was able to say i don't want to do that and that's what we're finding is that the counter story is powerful and is enough to make people really want to seek change within themselves and for others and to be honest i love my job it's super hopeful because I see change. I see change in one presentation. I see change because it's a good thing. And I think people really want to do the good thing. They just need help finding their way. Um, I want to add to that a little bit too. In terms of combating defensiveness, something that Heidi has definitely um, stressed and something that I've learned also to do is to, when addressing these topics, you want to make sure that it is very clear that you are blaming the society in which these young men are raised and not the young men because oftentimes that can be what leads to defensiveness and uh, almost like a guard going up and then you can't help them understand what you're trying to do. That's very important. Trisha, I don't know if you can speak to a similar discussion about um, supporting women who are being trafficked or have been trafficked, um, how to look for that, um, and also just kind of a general understanding of the experience and the trauma and how to sort of work around that in a safe manner with the women as well, because you don't want to harm them any more than they already have when having these discussions with them. I think I can simply answer that question a little bit and um, bounce back to a little bit of not blaming the men specifically for what's happened, but blaming society more. And at Thistle Farms model, which is the model that the program that I'm the program coordinator for, they have a question that they've shifted. Instead of asking the women that come to them, like, what's wrong with you? And changing that question to what happened to you. And I think that we can do the same thing for men, for men who are traffickers, for men who are exploiting women, for men who are buying sex. I think that we can ask that same question of what happened to you? Like what happened somewhere in your story that made you believe that this is okay and that this is the right thing to do? Like how can we change that narrative? Like how can we go back and figure out what happened along the line to make them believe that what they were doing was the right thing to do. And I think that it's just a question that we need to ask instead of doing the blame game. And because I think that shaming people like very rarely works. It very rarely works to shame people into doing the right thing. Education and, and processing and talking about 
what happened along the line to create that belief system in them is a more powerful, more impactful way to make that change happen. And I think that the same thing happens with the women that I'm working with is just trying to get them to a place where they can understand like how this all played out for them helps them to be able to recognize one, that it wasn't their fault, what happened to them. And two, you know, just to be able to make that change of not living in that moment for so long and being able to thrive and getting to that next place of not in survival mode anymore, but being able to get them to that place where they are thriving and thinking about long-term and thinking about, you know, what happened to me does not have to define who I am. It's a part of their story and it always will be, but it doesn't have to define their every ounce of their being. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. We talk a lot about uh, belonging, connection, and empathy. And people are like, well, what does that have to do with anything? And it's like, it has everything to do with it. When people feel like they belong, they're, they're more apt to be accountable to other people. Um, they're less apt to act violently towards others when they have empathy for themselves and people around them. And connection, you know, so we talk about upstander intervention. If you see somebody behaving in a way that you think there's something wrong, to instead of, you know, judging, sh- shaming, blaming, pointing a finger, you know, walk up to them and say, I'm observing, you know, something happening here that makes me feel uneasy. You know, can you share with me what's going on between you and this, this young woman? Or she looks to me like she doesn't want to be here. Can you see that too? You know, like you're, you're, you're creating a connection and a dialogue. I think that's, it's, that's really important. And, and to go back to what you were talking about, Sarah, this idea that boys are not broken. The culture in which we raise them is broken and in need of repair when we as a culture decide to legitimize women's voices and legitimize the harm that is being done to them as well as to the men is when I think we'll really see things shift. We've talked repeatedly in this podcast about media and incorrect portrayals of gender and human trafficking in movies, television, other forms of media. Is there a way to recognize that media and then grow from it? So I recommend, you know, to all listeners, there's an amazing film um, available to, and you can kind of just Google it and stream it on many different platforms now. It's called um, The Mask You Live In, and it really does an amazing job. It's literally a must-see for anyone 16 and older. Literally everyone needs to see this movie, and it really breaks down um, the way that our culture raises boys in a very harmful way. And I think that once you see that film, you can never not see the messaging coming at you. So I think that being able to dismantle it and understand it as it's coming at you is the real power. I know that after students go through our training, we do a lot of work around media literacy and where do we get these messages from? And once it's pointed out and it's in the student's field of awareness, they can never not see it again. They can then take the power out of it. We'll do a day of training and they'll come back for the second day and we'll say, well, what did you notice after you took this first day of training? You know, you went home, you thought about things, they will say almost immediately, I left the training and I walked down the hall in school and all I could see (laughs) was the negative gender messaging everywhere, you know? So I think the way to really take the power out of it is to have the awareness of it, right? If it gets pointed out to you and you're able to see and understand it, then it doesn't have the same hold on you. I also think it'd be really cool if we passed a ton of legislation that was like, you can't do this. There are other countries in the world who have basically said, like, you can't do gender stereotyping in advertising. And why not? That's such a great idea. That is such a great idea. Yeah, there, there's a whole section in the curriculum for Not a Number that deals with cultural norms and just talks about the music that you listen to and the advertisements on TV and in magazines and how people are portrayed in movies and how that can damage our belief system and what we grow to believe to be true. So it's it's really important to just continue to talk about it and continue to have that conversation. And yeah, it would be really great if we had some legislators that said, you can't do that stuff. That'd be great. (laughs) If there was anything that you hope somebody walks away from this podcast knowing or being motivated to do, do you have any themes or messages or even actions or resources that you might want to point people to? I feel like specific to the conversation that we've had, definitely like men aren't the devil here. Like boys and men, you know, are not the the thing that needs to be the focus here. The focus needs to be on what have you learned growing up? You know, what has the dialogue been with your grandparents and your parents? And, you know, one of the things that I, that I love, I have it posted in my bathroom actually 
as you, you might learn well, but were you taught right? It's just a simple way to just think about like, yeah, I, I learned that. And I, that seems to be something I know really well, but do I know that the correct way? Was I taught the right way? Um, and just kind of reevaluating like some of the things that we have been grown up to believe to be true our entire lives. We might want to think about where our belief system stems from and what is true and what isn't. So I think that just remembering that we can always grow and learn and we can learn new things and change change the way that we believe about things and, and the messages that we're sharing with other people and just look into things. Like if you're concerned about somebody or it's always best to, if you see something, say something. Um, there's always somebody that you can turn to or, you know, something that you can say to make a difference, um, even though you might not be that person to walk through that journey with somebody, you can point them in that direction. Um, there's always people that you can reach out to. You know, I, I just would say there's an inherent value and worth within you. And there is no one else on this planet that has more value or worth than you. I don't care how much money they have. I don't care how old they are. Nobody gets to act as though they have more value or worth than another person. Another thing I would say is trust your intuition. You know, our bodies are so smart and they're communicating with us constantly about if a situation doesn't feel right, if a person doesn't feel right, if you feel like something is happening to you that shouldn't be, our bodies send us all kinds of signals to believe your body and to look for the helpers. I do believe there are helpers everywhere to follow the people who, you know, who feel like the helpers. And there's a great organization. It's easy for me to remember. Um, it's called loveisrespect.org. And they have a wonderful online chat, online text setup where you can 24-7 confidentially talk to a person about any situation, a situation that you may be worrying about for a friend or a family member or even even yourself. It's in very easy also to just give somebody else that text somebody else that number loveisrespect.org. Again, safe online support for any kind of issues like these. And I just want to say thank you to our hosts for bringing such an important topic to more people. Hopefully we'll be able to share this with more people. I learn something every time I talk about this stuff. Um, and I just really appreciate the work that you all are doing. Yes, thank you so much for inviting me on this conversation. It was really great. Thank you so much for agreeing to be here um, and talk a little bit. One last final question that Heidi reminded me of. Are there any additional resources that people can go to to learn more about these topics if they wanted to or to get support if they needed it? Well, obviously, uh, Maine Boys to Men has a website. Um, more information about all of our programming is available through the website. So I would encourage, you know, men who are listening to this podcast and want to get involved and seek to become an ally towards all people um, that we're a great organization to be connected to. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a whole host of uh, resources in my head. <laughs> um, so I think just for purposes of this, like for what we've talked about today, definitely um, check out the Not Here website. My website for If Only One is still in, in discussion of being worked on. <laughs> um, definitely um, check out the Not Here website. Check out If Only One. Uh, New England Coalition Against Trafficking. I'm, I'm on the board for them. Check out Sophia's House. Sophia's House is the program that I'm program coordinator for. I think that's a pretty good starting point, but ju just check out people who are doing things, um, anti-trafficking work in your area. Well, thank you guys. This was, I was going to say fun, but I don't know if that is. <laughs> this is fun. This is great. <laughs> um, it was a really, really good discussion. Um, and I think that this will, you know, help a lot of people come to a better understanding of these topics. Thank you so much to anybody who listened to this episode. If you're interested in continuing the conversation or learning more about Hofstra Center for Civic Engagement, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Hofstra CCE or visit our website, hofstra.edu forward slash CCE. The beautiful music you've heard this episode was written and composed by Ethan Tauber, and we hope you will join us again to discuss combating more of our world's most pressing challenges. <laughs>